So yesterday, the plan was to release an interview I have taped with returning American Idol contestant Margie Mays, but unfortunately, I held off on posting the episode due to the current news of Ryan Newman, a NASCAR driver, who I have covered NASCAR-related stuff, and I'm an avid NASCAR fan, um, getting into a serious accident at the Daytona 500 on Monday, and I postponed the episode just in case... Um, something happened, it didn't feel right to post an episode at a time of what could have been a lot worse than it actually was. Accident, and Newman walked out okay, um, keep your prayers with him as he still did suffer many injuries, but none are believed to be life-threatening at this time, and a bulk of his condition is unknown, but it is known that he will live, and that is a very big miracle if you did see his crash. But shifting gears a little here, the American Idol contestant interview with the incredible friend of the show, Margie Mays, is going to air next Sunday, and today's guest is Emmy Award-winning ESPN analyst and Madison Square Garden Network, or MSG Network, analyst Alan Hahn. He's in somebody I'm a big fan of, and I got the privilege to sit down with him today and not only hear about his career, but pick his brain about sports. So I hope you enjoy this interview, and keep in mind there's a lot more ambitious com- content coming your way soon. Stay tuned, and a reminder, you can listen wherever you listen to podcasts. After a quick ad, roll the show. Yo, what is up? Welcome to Ambitious. My name is Dylan Price. Today's guest is Alan Hahn. He is an analyst for the MSG Network, where he covers the New York Knicks. He hosts a sports radio talk show along with former New York Jet Bart Scott called the Bart and Hahn Show. And he is today's guest on Ambitious. Alan Hahn, how is it going? It's going well, Dylan. Good to talk to you. So thank you for taking the time to come on. And starting from your career... How did you get to where you are, and what was that process like? It took a very long time. Um, I started out really at the smallest possible place you could start out, a weekly newspaper uh, out in the Hamptons right out of college. Um, This was in the early 90s, so there was no internet yet. We were just kind of in the early stages of all that stuff happening, so you didn't have a lot of websites, obviously you didn't have any websites or sports websites or uh, obviously no podcasts like yours or any way to get any type of experience. So and I was a basketball player in college, so even less time for me to get experienced as uh, somebody in the, in the media. What I did was write for the school paper. That was basically all I had. So the first job I could get, which and I got a million rejection letters, of course, uh, was a weekly newspaper, so once a week publish. And from there, I was able to get a job at Newsday on Long Island, which they recognized my name because I was in the paper as an athlete, and they gave me a chance. And it was a part-time job, Dylan. It was answering phone calls. It's basically you're called a sports clerk. You don't write stories. You just take phone calls, some of them from coaches who are giving you, like, a high school score, and you write a little blurb uh, in the paper that your name doesn't go on it. My first byline story in a newspaper was about uh, a badminton, high school badminton team. Wow. It was a 300-word story, and I was sent to cover a high school badminton. And, you know, like you laugh, and I laugh too when I tell the story, 
It was my first byline, and I treated it like it was like, you know, Nick's Bulls. You know, like I was so fired up for that opportunity that I wanted it to be the best story in the paper that day. Mm-hmm. But from there, you know, in time, it took me five years. So five years I was part-time, and I just kind of kept climbing a little bit, getting more and more bylines and more experience. And I was also trying to find other places that I could get a job. And Alabama, um, a friend of mine lived down there, and there's the, uh, the paper in Birmingham, and they had an opening for their Alabama football and basketball beat. And I applied for it, went down for an interview, they, they offered me the job. I told Newsday I was going, and they said, no, you're not. Uh, we don't want to lose you. Would you want to cover the Islanders? And I said, yeah, absolutely. So that became my opportunity. The door opened for me, and uh, I became the Islanders beat writer. I did that for six years and covered the Rangers as well. I covered a ton of Stanley Cup finals and always had my eye on the Knicks beat because I was the basketball guy. I always wanted it. And in 06, uh, they offered that to me. And so I did that for a number of years. MSG was obviously, you know, paying attention to what I was doing. And I was doing more radio and some, you know, handful of TV appearances here and there. But I had no TV experience. I'd never done broadcasting before. But 2010 came around. And the LeBron James free agency was such a big story. And I, you know, a lot of us were, were all over that story. I tried to stay ahead as, as best I could on it. Mm-hmm. And MSG was doing a show in the summer, and they wanted to have a reporter on who could give, like, all the updates on what's happening in free agency that summer. So I I made a couple of appearances. They liked it. And, you know, within a year was, hey, why don't you do some post games for us? So I did a couple of post game appearances. And then during the lockout that year, they were kicking around the idea of, of giving me a position that was very similar to Jack Curry, who was a writer for a long time, who became... Uh, a, an analyst, a, a reporter for the Yes Network on Yankee broadcasts, and he was a, a long time an excellent Yankee writer. Mm-hmm. And so they saw the Jack Curry model, and they said, "Hey, you know, would you want to do something like Jack's doing, but you're doing it for the Knicks on MSG?" I said, "Sure, absolutely." And so I took that, and you know, learn and literally, I mean, Dylan, I'm talking about. I didn't even know where the camera was. Like there was so much that I had to learn about being on TV that I never had experience in. But the one thing they kept telling me is, but you have information, people want that information, so all you have to do is just, instead of writing a story, tell the story, or tell, give the information. And and from there, that's when I started making appearances on, on ESPN Radio, and started coming in studio, and then they, true story, the, the station manager there, who's now in Bristol on the national level, one time I came in and I said, who am I hosting with? And he said, you're hosting by yourself. Good luck. Three-hour show by myself. <laughs> Never done it before in my life. And wow. I sweated through the whole thing and panicked and everything else. But it's really, for me, Dylan, been learn as I go. And every opportunity that was given to me, whether it was the smallest of a high school badminton or whether it was the biggest, which is, you know, come on TV and learn how to become a broadcaster, you know, I took it. I was doing. I started learning how to be a host hosting the coaches show with Mike Woodson and Derek Fisher. Um, it's all been an experience for me, but it's, it's always been take the challenge, learn from something. It's been a lot of failure, but opportunity came from the work that I put in starting at the very beginning of just saying to myself, no job too small. I made everything I did feel like it was the biggest thing happening. 
and I think that's what stood out. So I wish I could say it was like this magical thing where I was like this superstar that everybody knew was going to be great, but I literally was just another guy. It was a matter of how much work you put in and what you do with the opportunities that you're given. So little by little, it just turned into what you just said. I'm, you know, I've been on MSG now for about eight years, and it's grown into a bigger role on MSG to other things, other shows. And at ESPN Radio now, I've, you know, I'm on, I'm back in the uh, daytime slot again for the second time uh, with my own show, and I've had my own show on ESPN now for five years. So that's pretty much how it happened. It, it, it wasn't a, it wasn't a direct line from point A to point B. It was a meandering, learn as you go, ups and downs, roller coaster ride. That I gotta admit, it's been a lot of fun. Now you've. I don't know if my intro gave enough credit, but you've accomplished a lot in your career. Among everything you just said, you've also written five books, you've won an Emmy, you've won a award for Best Broadcast Team with uh, Rick D. I'm going to butcher his last name. Pietro, yeah. Pietro. And you won uh, the Outstanding On-Air Broadcasting Team Award from the New York State Broadcasters Association, and you've also received Newsday's Publishers Award for Sports Writing. So you've received a lot of accolades, and you've worked very hard. Of everything you've accomplished in your career, what has been maybe the biggest, oh my God, accolade that you've gotten? Wow. Um, I mean, the Emmy is the coolest thing because it's a team win. You know, like some Emmys are individual, like just for one person, whether it's, you know, the announcer, um, you know, but the, the Emmys, is, we actually, we got four of them. Oh, wow. And they're for, they're for the, our broadcast on MSG. It's for the entire broadcast. So we win it as a team. So our producer, our director, our, the host, uh, you know, Wally Zerbiak and I as the analysts, like, we all won that. And, and I guess that's what I took the most pride in because, you know, that feels really cool when you know how much time and effort are put into what you do and you can share it with others, right? Like, we all together, we all hold the trophies together, we all look at each other like, wow, we did this, we have the best, you know, we have the best show. Like, that's the coolest feeling. So the first one was, like, I, I stared, I swear, I took it out because it comes in this cool box. Um, you know, like they have an award show, but, mm-hmm. you know, like for all of us to go, it doesn't make sense. And, and you don't know you're going to win, but everybody gets the trophy. So when the, they give you the trophy, it, it's delivered in a it's this beautiful, gigantic black box. When you open it, it's like this, you know, velvet interior that is formed. So when you take the trophy out, it's in this it's just gorgeous covering. You pull it off. And there's the trophy, and it's an act, you know, you look at the Emmy, and you've seen Emmys, you know, a million times on TV, but when you're looking at it in your hand, and it has your name on it, you know, that's that wow moment, like, are you kidding? Like, did I just win this? So, yeah, I guess, and then you think about the whole group together, you all look at each other, and you're like, we did this, and the fact that we did it four times, like, that's such a great feeling. Now, I'd love to win one for my writing, or for analyst, that'd be great, too. But there is something special about winning it as a team. Now, you just recently, just this year, started a new talk show on ESPN, the Bart Scott and Han Show, as I mentioned earlier, Will Bart and Han Show. And you're in the weekday time slot. How has it been transitioning to a show with Bart Scott, and how has that been for the past couple months? It's been easy. 
it's been a seamless transition. He's great to work with. Uh, he's he's really funny. He's ener- his energy's off the charts, which is how he was as a player. So mm-hmm. it's no surprise. But it's the coolest thing, like to have somebody like that who's a you know who's a pro, former athlete. It was the same thing when I worked with Chris Canty and also with Rick DiPietro. It's you know they they come in and their passion for sports. And these guys are like a lot of times like regular people like us. Like we think athletes, you know, like it's their like, what do they care? Like no big deal. Like they only care about the games they're playing in. You don't know that they're actually fans too. And so when we get into other sports and to see them get all fired up and we get into arguments and we fight over things, it's fun. So I, I was always curious how Bart would be in those situations. Would he only be an NFL guy? Like would he really just be about football? But yeah, he's he's so easy to work with because the passion for him comes naturally. He loves to debate. He doesn't take himself so seriously that how dare you? You know, I played you. What do you know? Like he never he never does that. And he's a lot of fun. And plus, the most important part is he puts in the work. He studies, he reads, he watches. You know, he doesn't just show up and think, I'm just going to say whatever comes to mind. Like, he makes sure he has facts. So I think that's what makes it a fun show. My experience from working with DiPietro with working with Canty has kicked in here, too, because all the things I learned, things I did right, things I did wrong, uh, has also helped me make this show uh, become, I think it's it's going to do really well. It's a matter of time now. Of course, it's only our first month together, but it, it's been great. It's a lot of fun, and and you know, I'm sure you'd love to have a chance one day to to do something like this. And working with pro athletes is it's not always easy, but it's it's also to me it also is fun because it's you see how fired up they can get about things, how competitive they are. And you really get a look behind the curtain about what it's like, how different you need to be to get as far, to get to the level that these guys got to, you know, your mentality, your relentlessness, your pursuit of, of being great. Not only do they do that on the field or on the ice or on the court, they'll do it in everything in life, and that includes radio. So it's always fun to be part of now, it is a privilege for me to be able to sit here and talk to you and now to kind of talk some sports with you. One of the biggest things right now in, heading in baseball is the cheating scandal with the Astros and even the Red Sox. How do you think that the Astros should have been punished? Do you think that the punishment was fair? And do you are you one of the people that thinks the World Series should have been taken away? Yeah, I, I definitely feel like they've got to strip the title. Mm-hmm. Um I just feel like it's the only way to get closure on this because I just feel like it remains an open wound for baseball. And I don't think that the players were punished nearly enough. And just say that, you know, they'll be ridiculed now. That that doesn't mean anything because they still have the ring on their finger. They still have the banner up in the stadium and they still have the trophy in the trophy case. And to me, that message basically says, sure, we got caught cheating, but guess what? it was still worth it because we have a championship and they can't take, you know, they say, you know, they can't take this away from us, but you always hear that from people who win championships. They can't take this away from us. Well, this one needs to be taken away mainly because we don't know how they want it. And they can insist to us all they want that, well, we did cheat, but we didn't cheat when it really mattered. And we didn't cheat on that. We didn't cheat on this play. I don't want to hear it. You still were caught cheating. You still admitted to it. And while the players can't get punished because the union won't let it and the league you know, gave the players immunity, the fact that you're going to go in there, that every team 
game goes in that building in, in, in Houston. They go into Minute Maid, and they, they have to see a banner on the wall. There's some farce to that that I think needs to be corrected. And I actually think, Dylan, that there are threats. I mean, uh, Nick Marqueca said today that they need to, some of those players need a beatdown. Mm-hmm. That there's a lot of threats that are out there right now about throwing at these guys and you know a lot of animosity that they're going to face from, from around the league. I think if you take the title away, strip the title, all that goes away. I think everybody gets their pound of flesh, and now we can move on. But if they don't take it away, then this will not – you don't get to move on, and it will continue to perpetuate, and it might put a black cloud over this season. I completely agree, and I think another thing, as Manford kind of said in his presser a couple days ago, he's, like, trying to already nip it in the butt of, you know, don't throw at the players, you're going to get in trouble, but how can you really say, you know, don't give them repercussions physically when the league didn't do anything and Manford really didn't do anything? Yes, Cora's gone in Boston, and yes, um, now there's a significant shift in the managerial and front office setup of the Astros and they have to work with that, but they still have their team. They still have their roster. Dusty Baker's a phenomenal manager. They're going to be okay. And they've not really been like, I agree the world series should be taken away. And on the same end, as you just said, it would actually probably protect the Astros players more to take the ring away than to play this whole season with the fact that they're going to get hit a couple times. Players don't really care. I don't think they're going to care very much about being suspended in the sense of, well, they got what they deserved kind of thing. And that's a issue for MLB to handle. Yeah, there's going to be a couple of guys that aren't afraid to step over the line. You just, you just know it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And, that, and I don't think if you're baseball, you don't want that. That's the last thing you want is mm-hmm. to now have a game where someone throws at someone or someone comes into Altuve, spikes up, or you know, or just a brawl ensues or something. Like, baseball, like, how is that going to be okay? And now you got to suspend a bunch of people. And now the story comes back alive again because most of the country will say, you know, let's say it's the A's that threw at them, right? And then the mm-hmm. brawl happened between the A's and the Astros. Most of the country's going to say the A's were right. And Manfred, that's your fault. Because you could have stopped this and you didn't. And that's why this happened. Like, that's what, if you're baseball, you don't want that. You don't want that. So this is the only way to fix that problem. To close the circle. To, to heal the wound. Is to just basically, alright, you know what? The title is gone now. These guys have paid the ultimate price. The ultimate price is losing that championship, which is the only one that the franchise has. So if you do that... That's why I feel like that then it then it closes. But if you don't, you're just you're you're opening the door. No matter how and oh by the way, how about this, Dylan? The fact that the players on the Astros somehow would become the victim, like Manfred saying, like, oh no, you can't throw at these guys, you'll get punished. So wait, I can get punished for for having for, for holding these guys accountable like you won't, but they're not getting punished for literally cheating the thing. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a problem, too. So you'll see, the whole country, like, most of the opinion will be that whoever try, starts something with the Astros will be in the right. Mm-hmm. And that's an ugly place for baseball to be. And I think another aspect of it, too, is Rob Manford, as you said, is going to have a lot of this on his hands, and his commissioner reign is going to be tarnished by the fact that he pissed a lot of people off by not removing the title. He's pissing more people off now by sort of victimizing the Astros and protecting them in that sense, and it's making him 
have a very messy reign, and he also, on a completely other aspect, is got a big issue with minor league baseball right now where they might not re-up the deal and Manfred is trying to play hardball with them and he could end up leaving in a few years with one of the worst commissioner tenures in baseball history because of how much has gotten on his hands. And, and, and keep in mind too that their, their CBA is up in 2021 and they have, they have to renegotiate broadcasting deals with Turner and ESPN. Yeah. So how about that? Like he's got all that coming up while this mess is going on. And the thing about Manfred is that actually the beginning of his tenure, you thought he, you were putting him up there with Adam Silver as somebody that was listening to ideas, that was mm-hmm. being proactive about speeding up the game and making important changes that might help the game and make it more entertaining. Like He sounded like somebody that was ready to be progressive, and if something like this happens, and he has just he has fumbled it badly. Mm-hmm. He's showing no spine whatsoever. And it's a bad, it's a really bad look for him, and it could end up costing baseball a lot. You never know. Like if the if the sports, like the approval rating of the sport, has got to be going down because of the handling of this, and that's the last thing that they can afford to have happen. I agree. And switching trend, well, transitioning here to some basketball, as you just mentioned, Adam Silver. You are a big Knicks guy, so let's talk about the New York Knicks. They currently have a 17-38 and 38 record. They're not doing so hot this year, but who do you think is likely to be the next head coach for this team next year, starting with that? Uh, it's, you know, it's an interesting question. I mean, they do have Mike Miller as the interim right now, and he, you know, he's, done a, he's done a nice job there um, since he took over. They're, you know, they've had some tough losses um, lately, but there have been also some impressive performances by them as well with him uh, coaching it. So I do think he'll be somebody that should get some consideration or at least some some consideration even just to stick around with whomever does take over. I, I've I've said this on my show, you know, so I, I'm pretty strong about it. I just feel like the right guy for this moment for right now would be Jeff Van Gundy. Um, it's a matter of somebody that understands New York. He's actually obviously coached here before. He gets what's going on. He's just recently coached for USA Basketball and uh, you know a younger team, a college team, and he did very well with them. So they responded well to him, which suggests he can coach young players. There's some people that feel like uh, he's an old, you know, from from the old school, and not sure he can coach young players, but he proved that he could. And it's just. The Knicks need somebody like him that is sort of a, a, not a face of the franchise, but maybe the, the right kind of front man that can calm everything down. He's got a good rapport with media. He understands that part of it. He's not overwhelmed by coverage. In fact, he gets it so much, he, he finds it funny. Uh, he knows everybody as well, so there wouldn't be this, there, there wouldn't be a, a, a breaking in period. I just think he gets it. And so for right now, I feel like he makes the most sense on many levels, and I'd love to see it happen. And on top of it, as I mentioned, Mike Miller. Well, Mike Miller coached with Jeff with USA Basketball. They were he was on the staff with them for a couple of weeks when they had that group, the, the exhibition team, and you know they have a relationship. And so, what better way to, to sort of you know give Mike Miller that pat on the back of the job well done after he took over a four and eight eighteen team, and keep him on the staff with you because then that would make a good story too so it's just 
makes sense to me on many levels. There is a relationship there. The, the reported president, incoming president, Leon Rose, they know each other really well. So, so much of it makes sense. And I almost feel like I'm trying to speak it into existence, as Lamar Ball would say. Looking ahead to this coming offseason, um, this summer is going to be a big one for New York Knicks. What are maybe one or two moves you would love to see them make this offseason? Well, that's a good one. Um, well, I, I, you know, the draft is going to be very important mm-hmm. once again, but I wonder how, you know, where they'll be picking and then what type of player you try to get there. But, you know, they're going to have to make some, some more of those decisions because there's not a lot of avail- there's not a lot of things available in free agency this summer. So it's not like you can really attack free agency the way you'd want to. Uh, Anthony Davis is the biggest name, but you kind of feel like he's going to stay with the Lakers. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if you're going to attract a free agent like you were hoping to last year. I might look to see if there are players or a player that is disgruntled where he is. Maybe he feels like I'm not like I'm not achieving what I want to achieve here in this market. Maybe I want to find a bigger place. You try to find and identify who that is and see if you can make an aggressive trade using a lot of the assets that you have. And try to go out and get yourself a star player through a trade since doing it through free agency has always has been very difficult for the Knicks. But they can make a trade for one if one becomes available. You know, call Anthony Towns with somebody you thought might be that guy. Now we'll see what happens with mm-hmm. D'Angelo Russell now as teammates. But there's there's names like that that appear every year. It never fails. And you got to identify those players and see if there's a fit for you. Because I do think they've got to find themselves a star that can help stabilize them a little bit while they continue to build with younger players around them. How much do you believe, as a Knicks person, that James Dolan is the root of the issues? I don't. As an owner that spends everything that you could ask him to spend, if you ask him... What do I, you know, if he says, what do, you, what do you need? And then he provides it. Mm-hmm. There's just been some poor leadership with the franchise that he's given the reins to. And it's just been mistake after mistake by the people that he put in charge. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I mean, look at the hockey team that he runs. It's, they have great leadership, whether it was Glenn Sather and now it's John Davidson. And it's trickled down from there. And the Rangers told their fans they were rebuilding. They wrote a letter which was the smartest thing to do. And then a year later, they have a young team that a lot of their fans love. They, they were able to sign a free agent that has changed their front, their top line. Uh, you know, they found another goalie now that looks like ready to be the heir apparent to Henrik Lundqvist. They've done everything right, and it's been a rebuild that the fans knew was coming and was, was able to get behind. Now, it hasn't been completely smooth sailing, mm-hmm. but still, they, you know, how can that franchise run by the same person have relative stability and a fan base that understands what they're doing. There's always passion. People are always going to complain about things. But how can that happen on one end? And on the other end, owned by the same person, how can the owner be be at fault for one and not credited for the other? I just think it has to do with who you're hiring to run your franchise. And now the question is, is did did he get it right this time um, with Leon Rose as the reported team president, who's a well-connected guy, knows a lot of people, and, you know, could could end up finding what you need to find, which is get the best of the best to run your franchise, get the best scouts, get the best coaching, get the best of everything. And 
and then go from there. We, we, we put a lot of emphasis on players mm-hmm. and stars. But I think when you look around the league and you see some of the league, some of the franchises that have had success, it's not necessarily always with stars. It's with your your front office staff, your scouting staff, your coaching staff, and then they turn players into great players, like what we're seeing in Toronto. We see it in Miami. We see it in Denver. You know that I think that's the emphasis that I'd like to see, and I'm you know I'm, I'm hopeful that that's the direction it goes in. Now. Transitioning here to another sport, the NFL. This coming weekend is one of the biggest weekends for NFL draft and the NFL offseason as a whole, as it is the NFL scouting combine. How much do you believe is riding on this weekend for, say, Joe Burrow, say some of the top quarterbacks in this class like Burrow and Herbert? Well, you say how much is riding on it. What do you mean? How much does their performance need to... Obviously, it seems like Burrow is locked in at one to Cincinnati. Yeah, I, but... for quarterbacks, I don't think the, the combine is as important as it is for, I think, like linemen, offensive linemen, defensive linemen. I think anybody who's an edge rusher, you know, this is where you really can show off things that might you might not have been able to show off if you're playing in a college system that might not have shown your best skill. Mm-hmm. This is where you'll find like a wide receiver that might jump off the page because of his, uh, you know, his vertical ability, his his ability, his speed, um, things like that. That's why I think like a lot of the defensive ends, the linebackers, um, I think offensive tackles. This is big for them because you might see something out of them physically that you didn't know about that could suddenly make them more valuable than another guy that's listed in their same category. Quarterbacks, quarterbacks. After Herbert, you know, Tua obviously isn't going to be healthy, so they're basing mm-hmm. everything with Tua off of what he did at Alabama. Uh, Burroughs, this guy won the Heisman. I mean, there's not yeah. much more you could possibly do. He's also 24. He's older. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Cincinnati should make him the number one pick. But after that, it's, you know, other quarterbacks that we've seen, you know, in college that maybe has to show you a little something, maybe has to show you an accuracy you didn't know about. Most most of these guys, too, will have pro days. Most of them will, will after the combine, do their own thing. So, as far as the quarterbacks go, I, I don't think it matters nearly enough at the very top. Mm-hmm. Now, looking to some New York teams, specifically starting with the New York Jets, as that's a team I'm fairly invested in, where do you think they need to go at 11? There's a lot of holes there, specifically wide receiver, yeah. edge rush, offensive line, cornerback. There's a lot of places they could go, but where do you think that they should go with that number 11 pick? See, I think when you're in the top 10, especially the top 5, you always take the best player available. The most important thing to do when you're top 5, especially, is you just whoever the best talent available is, you take that. You never pass on talent. Once you're out of the top 10, you take the best player that fits what you need. Best player for your need. You can get a little a little more greedy there because the talent level, once you get out of the top 10, tends to be about the same from position to position. You nailed it. The Jets have a needed wide receiver, in my opinion. I think Robbie Anderson might be moving on. Uh, he's going to want to get paid. So, like, to me... Wide receiver makes the most sense. You'll have two choices there. I think Judy from Alabama. I keep talking Alabama guys, but Judy is one, and then uh, CD is the other one from Oklahoma. Those are both of those guys should be there at eleven, and those two guys make the most sense for the Jets. You want to get 
a, a young receiver to grow up with your young quarterback. You already have your pretty solid tight end. You know your running back situation would love you on at least for one more year, you figure. Uh, you know, Crowder, I think, really showed you something as a, more of a slot receiver. You've got pieces. Offensive line needs to be built up, but I feel like at 11, the value at offensive line might drop off if you're not inside the top 10. So if you can't mm-hmm. trade up to get uh, one of the one of the big tackles or one of the, the highly touted offensive linemen, you go for skill and you get yourself, you know, when was the last time they had a wide receiver in the first round? Keyshawn? Yeah, so, Keyshawn. You know, it, it, I feel like this might be the time to get yourself a playmaker to go along with your quarterback. Now, do you have a preference over Judy or Lamb? No, I don't. I don't know it enough. I'm not going to pretend like I can break down both of the players. Mm-hmm. I know that I know Lamb is, a, you know, CD's a, 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 I think he, he, he comes out of his system where they threw the ball a ton. Mm-hmm. So I think there's more tape about what he can do. Whereas, I mean, I, Tua was so hurt. He was hurt so much last year. You know, did you really see everything out of Jerry Judy? But obviously, you know, he's a tremendous talent as well. Mm-hmm. I think you want to go with the guy who's got the best speed, who can get down the field, and I do think that C.D. Lamb is that guy. So if, if you're asking my amateur opinion, I'm, you know, I'm no, I'm no Mel Kuyper. But I, I guess I would say C.D. Lamb, but I don't think you can go wrong with the other guy. Now... In free agency, is that where you think they should try to reconstruct the offensive line, specifically yeah. maybe like a Taylor Decker, Joe Thunny, um, Brandon Scherf if he gets available, um, I believe another piece, uh, Glasgow from um, Detroit is going to be available. So do you think yeah. that's the route that they should go? Yeah, yeah, I, I, you know, Jack Conklin, like, I think you can go, I do, I do think you've got to figure that part out. You're going to have to go offensive line probably in the second round as well. I think you might even have to do it a couple of times in the draft. Um, I do think there is that there is importance to making sure that you do get out of the draft some offensive line depth. But, yeah, they're, they're going to have to be aggressive. In, in, um, there's two areas that I'd love to see them be aggressive. Mm-hmm. But I think the most important area is going to have to be offensive line. I really would love to see them find an edge rusher in, in free agency. I just don't know if they'll be able to afford it. I love Shaq Lawson. Like, I'd love to see him as a Jet. I just don't know if they'll be able to afford him. One thing I do I- think offensive line is going to be a valuable valuable area for them to go. you got to protect this kid. He's gotta, mm-hmm. Sam's got to play a whole season. And it's his third year. It's, it's time to take that step. Mm-hmm. And he's got to play a full year this year. And the only way to do it is to keep him upright and keep him healthy. I think the best thing of all the scenarios I've seen would maybe be to go after Thunny from New England and Conklin from Tennessee, get those guys as anchors on the offensive line, draft Tyler Bidez in the second round to be the new center, re-sign Lewis and Beecham and have Adoga back next year, and that way you have three pieces there, at least for this season. You can draft another one maybe in the draft, maybe two pieces in the draft as well. That way you have... Yeah, I think to go twice in the draft. Mm-hmm. Adoga they really like. I think Harrison's a pretty good center. I do think they like him. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I mean, I know he hasn't he hasn't been great, but you know that that line stabilized towards the end of the year. You have to admit that they, they yes. did start to stabilize after it was really shaky. I think Khalil was over his head. He mm-hmm. should have never come out of retirement, um, and I think he struggled big time early on. Beecham, I, I, you know, I like him. I don't know if he's a left. He might be a right. But Conklin's a right, so if you go for Conklin, because I agree with you, mm-hmm. um, maybe either you just stick with Beecham, who's decent, not great. 
But, yeah, I, I'm with you. I feel like, and, and, you know, Joe Douglas has the offensive lineman mentality yes. anyway. He knows the value there. Everywhere he's gone, Baltimore and obviously Philly, they prioritize the line of scrimmage on both sides of the ball. Mm-hmm. And I think if you're the Jets, you have to do that on the offensive side. They've got some skill guys. I think you'll get another year out of Lev, unless, of course, somebody wants to make a trade that you can get some value. Um, but I, if you give Lev another year with Sam and a good offensive line, and then you add a, a big banger at wide receiver in the draft, I think you've got the makings of a potential offense that really can open up a playbook that if you, if, if you ask Adam Gates privately, he'll tell you they were playing with like two-thirds of the book. They really weren't playing the whole playbook. There was something they just couldn't do because they didn't have the personnel to do it. And that probably was the most frustrating thing for him of all. Now, do you think, I obviously would love to keep talking Jets with you, but do you think Gase is the guy for the future for this team? Well, I don't think he have a choice. I think, I think he has to be. Mm-hmm. I, I like him as a person. I don't love him as a coach from what I've seen this year. And I'm hoping that, again, like I said, that it's mainly because he wasn't able to play the whole playbook based on personnel that was given to him by a GM that was fired right after he built the team. He and Joe Douglas know each other. They're friends. They're on the same page. There's synergy there. I think that's a critical aspect here because Joe knows what Adam wants. He knows what he needs. And Adam respects Joe, which I don't think existed with Mike McCagney. Yeah. So at least you have synergy. So knowing that your coach and your front office are on the same page means the, the, the GM will get the personnel that the coach needs. And the, the coach will have personnel that he's not going to complain about because that's who I wanted. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. this is what I wanted. So that it starts there. So Adam Gates is here because Joe Douglas is here. But I do feel like if we don't see some progress next season. Now, Greg Williams did a great job with the defense, and so you're pretty comfortable on that side. The offense has to catch up. And if it does, you have to make something special. If it doesn't, mm-hmm. then t- something tells you that Greg Williams will be another interim coach at some point. And, you know, once again, another quarterback goes through a transition of a new head coach. So you got to watch next year. It's going to be very important to see health, but progress on the offensive side. And one last question for you, Jets-related. Do you think Jamal Adams will be locked up this offseason? I do, yeah. I, I just feel like that, that, that the owner loves him, and it always that in the end, that's all that matters. Mm-hmm. Um, it's going to cost, and that's always an issue. But I just feel like that's the kind of guy you, you need to have in your locker room. Those are important guys to have. I think he got a little crazy midway through the year. I don't think he liked some of the trade rumors he was hearing. He took it very personal. Once they all got sat down and got on the same page and, you know, had a chat, I, I think he, he he came back and he became more of a leader that he needs to be instead of a guy that was worried about his himself and his own situation. Those guys, those passionate guys, popular locker room guys, they're valuable. You need guys like that. So I do, I do expect to see him stay with the Jets, sign a contract, how long he stays with the Jets, that's another question. Now, I do want to touch on the Giants for my Giants fan audience. Just one quick question. Where do you think is the biggest need for them this offseason? Anything on defense. Anything. I mean, they need an edge rusher, which I think they'd be... They're going to have a ton of money to spend, so I can see them doing that in free agency. Uh, obviously, they need corner help. 
They need safety help. They need linebacker help. I mean, the only thing they have is is, a, is an interior defensive lineman. Maybe they have too many. So I feel like that anywhere on defense, and they've and then, like Gettleman has to focus on the defensive side this time around because I think they've got plenty of skill on offense. So I really think that'll be their focus this year, and I can definitely see them trading out of the number four pick to get more picks because of how many needs they have. And my final question for you. Um, is something I ask every guest that comes on the show, and it is a big one, and it's complete. It's kind of going back more to career than it is about um, any of the stuff we just talked about. But my last question is: When you are all done with your career, what is the legacy you want to have left? It's a big one. You can take as much time as you want. Wow. Um, just want to be known as somebody that you know showed the passion of a fan and the and yet the. Um, the, the awareness, I guess, or perspective of somebody that is in the know. I never want to lose, like, the fan passion part of it because that does sometimes happen when you get – when you know too much sometimes, you lose touch with how, how much a fan cares. And I never wanted to lose that. I never wanted to be that guy that didn't understand why fans, you know, flip out about things or why fans care so much to know about – to get information. Um so I just I guess that's that's really it, you know. Just to be known as someone that never lost touch of what the fans love, and yet was able to provide the best perspective of somebody that had insight, insight, and insider knowledge um, to to give you know to keep you informed. I mean, that, that's always been my thing. You know, I love doing this because I love talking sports, but I also love being part of these types of conversations. I like being depended on. To get the story, to get the information, what do you know and why? You know, I, I love that stuff. So to me, if somebody can say that about me when my career is over, that I, I entertain them, I inform them, that that I was somebody they felt they could count on, I was reliable, and I feel like I did my job. Well, Mr. Hahn, I very, very much appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule to come on the podcast. It was an absolute privilege and honor to sit and pick your brain a little bit about sports. Um, I do, before I close out, want to give you the floor to plug whatever you want, your social media, um, the show, anything before we close out. Hey, well, the show is Barton Hahn. It's on 98.7 ESPN uh, from 1 to 3 every day, Monday through Friday. And it's it's only two hours, so it goes by real fast, but it's a high energy. And if you know Bart Scott, you know, it's, a, it's always a ton of energy. So, you know, we love listeners. We love callers, all that stuff. That's a big part of it. And. You know, social media is just my name, Alan Hahn on Twitter and uh, Ahan MSG uh, on Instagram. And you can shout me out whenever you want. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to come on. It was an absolute honor. My pleasure, Dylan.